but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He said, I am the man. They said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And continuing with verse 28, And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is a marvel. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. The Gospel of the Lord.
Please pray with me. Lord, may your word speak to us this morning, or this afternoon. Lord, would you open our eyes to see you for who you are, that you would anoint our hearts with your Holy Spirit, and Lord, that you would continue to stir up in us all of those things that you would like to touch with your grace to redeem, to make us whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Most of you probably know my father by now. He's a member of this small parish, small mission. And, um, but what you might not know is that we share a common purpose in life. We both help people see. We both help people see, albeit in different ways. He's an optometrist or an eye doctor, and so he literally helps people see. And, of course, as God's priest, I also try to see myself and help others see the reality of who Jesus is and where God's working in their lives. We use different tools but have the same end. His end, or his tools are scientific, and mine happen to be more divine. In today's gospel passage, we see Jesus giving sight. We see Jesus, our Lord, opening up the eyes of a blind man. But I think that if we're not careful, we miss what is actually being shown because the miracle of the blind man receiving sight is actually an illustration of yet another miracle, that is God showing himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at who Jesus is in John chapter 9, we're taking a slight detour from Matthew in the lectionary and looking at what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ and how is it that Jesus, as God's chosen person, reaches out to the desperate. Remember last week was our annual meeting, and so I didn't preach on it, but we looked at John chapter 4, and we saw the story of the Samaritan woman trapped in sexual sin. Today we see a blind man trapped in blindness, but we see, perhaps more importantly, the religious leaders of Jesus' time trapped in a deeper blindness, a spiritual blindness, a blindness that has eternal consequences. Most people in Jesus' time assumed 
that physical blindness was due to sin. If you have your Bible with you, open with me to John chapter 9, verse 2. We see this evidenced in the disciples. Question to Jesus. And his, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The Pharisees actually assume the same thing you'll find. In verse 34, they cast the blind man out on the pretense, but apparently the one that's widely accepted, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out of the synagogue. The assumption here is that the man sinned, or his parents sinned. And it's a cruel assumption, but it actually stems from an honest desire not to put the blame of such suffering on a holy God. Believe it or not, that was the motive for thinking that somebody had sinned to cause this man to be blind. You see, they were thinking back to the Old Testament um, and thinking back particularly to Numbers 14, verse 18, which reads, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, if you actually go back and you look at that passage, what's going on there is that Moses is interceding on behalf of the people of God because God is ready to wipe them out. Once again, this is the generation that was led out of Egypt, led out of slavery and bondage. And they're complaining again to the Lord, saying, it would be better for us to be back in Egypt. It would be better for us to have full bellies back in our homeland. And God has had enough. And Moses intercedes on their people, and in verse 19 says, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And God decides not to wipe them out, but actually there are still consequences to their sin. They're not allowed to enter into the promised land. So when the Pharisees talk about being disciples of Moses, they're appealing back here to the law in the Old Testament And the idea of sin being wrought to the the second and third generation due to a prior sin. That's what's being referenced here in regards to the blind man. So when the rabbi, when they ask Jesus, why is this man blind? That's what they're asking. They're assuming that God didn't make him blind because that would be cruel. So do you see, it's not as nasty as it sounds. Um their question. And yet, it's wrong. And Jesus corrects it immediately. Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be manifest, manifested in him. Jesus' answer is interesting because he shows that sin does cause suffering, although it's not always our own sin that causes our suffering. Now, sometimes it is, right? You've heard the old saying, uh, the, uh, the, the worst pains are self-inflicted, right? 
Um, and there's truth to that. And in fact, there's truth to the fact that our sin does twist and warp us. And there's also truth to the fact that um, generationally, when our parents have sinned or been in a habit of sin, that can actually be transferred on to us. And that's why we need healing prayer. And that's why during the rite of baptism, there's exorcisms done um, before the baby's baptized. It's to cleanse of those things. So there is, that's, that's actually true. But there's also the fact that sin of the world, sin of being in a fallen human race, affects us whether we do something or not. And so when we are afflicted with sickness or suffering, we can't necessarily assume that it's because of something we've done wrong. Although we might go and confess those things that we've done wrong, in case it is. Jesus here says that this man, particularly, is blind to show forth the glory of God. And so what we're going to see here is that this man is an illustration of how Jesus recreates human nature, how Jesus actually takes and heals and redeems this particular man at this particular time but as a sign of how he does that writ large with the redemption of mankind. Jesus says that he is the light of the world next. Did you see that? We must work while the work of him who, we must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So what's Jesus saying here about being the light of the world? And how does that tie to the other passages today? Well, we saw David anointed, right, as king in Samuel, as Phil read for us. And we saw that, that David was anointed as king to replace Saul and sent on a mission. We also see here that Jesus is anointed and sent on a mission, a mission to be the light of the world. But there's actually more going on in this text than that, because Jesus, in addition to calling himself the light of the world, calls himself the Son of Man in verse 37. The Son of Man. Now, lots of times people hear that and they think, well, of course, you know, he's the Son of Man, born of Mary. He's, he's you know, man. But there's a lot more going on there than just that. Jesus is son of God and son of man. And in this particular text, the fact that he's son of man means three things. Number one, that he's the creator and restorer. Number two, that he's the identifying sufferer. And number three, that he's the judge of all. All that's wrapped up in the category son of man. And we see that with the blind man, once again, illustrating Jesus as the light, light having to do with sight, right? But also illustrating all of mankind entrapped in sin and a slave to fallenness. The blind man receives physical sight, and this is the sign that accompanies the truth of Jesus as the son of man. Think about how that term is used in other John, parts of John's gospel. 
For example, in John 5, 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Also, we see um, in Mark chapter 9, verse 12, the, the term Son of Man is used by Jesus speaking of himself, and he says that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So Son of Man here, first and foremost, means Messiah or anointed one, but it's a Messiah on a mission, an anointed person with a task to accomplish. And so John here is connecting Jesus as the Son of Man with Jesus as the Son of God, showing that Jesus is both human and divine, not one or the other, but both. And in fact, he has to be in order to do anything for mankind. One of my favorite um, people that I like to read is a uh, Roman Catholic bishop, Bishop Fulton Sheen, who some of you know from years ago. He was on television a lot. Um, and he says this. He says, a sanctifier must be one with those whom he sanctifies. The very separateness of character between the two parties make it necessary that in some way they should be one. Our Lord had to be a man like his unholy brethren. He would make them holy. He would make them holy and be reproducing his life and, and he would only make them holy in reproducing his life and the lost idea of human nature and bringing the ideal to bear on their minds and hearts. What Bishop Sheen is saying is that Jesus had to be man in order to sanctify and redeem man. You see, he had to come down and be one of us and connect to all parts of us as human beings in order to restore us because he gives us that model, that perfect character, but he also infuses God's love into our hearts to give us the ability to meet the ideal for which we were initially created. So Jesus is the Son of Man, is a person of God, completely human, completely divine, and anointed to be on a mission greater than David, who was anointed to be king, and greater than Moses, who was anointed to be lawgiver. And notice, Jesus doesn't just assert this. Every time it's asserted, Jesus gives a sign. And today's gospel is no different with the blind man. So immediately after talking about the fact that he is the light of the world, what does Jesus do? What's he do? He gives the man sight. Yeah, absolutely. This is verse 6. As he said this, that is, I am the light of the world, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle 
and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Notice what Jesus does here. Jesus does a sacramental act to bring sight to this man. He spits on the ground and makes mud from the clay. He takes something very ordinary, almost dirty, and uses that to heal. What other event in Scripture involves clay? Exactly. God's creation of man, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is no accident, friends. Paulinus, patriarch of Antioch in the 300s, wrote the following. He commanded the light, and it was born from the darkness. Likewise, here too, Jesus made clay from his spittle and brought to fullness what was lacking in creation. Do you see, this is an object lesson where Jesus shows the blind man who he is, but he shows everybody around him who he is too. Jesus couldn't just come out and say, it was I who created without demonstrating it. And so here he demonstrates it was he in Genesis by whom all things were made. And it's in him that all things will be remade and restored. There's a second part to the verse too, right? Verse, the end of verse 6 and into verse 7, what does he tell the man to do? He tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Yeah. So in addition to being a sacramental act, what does that sound like? Baptism. So see, you have here a prefigurement of recreation in baptism itself. And notice that Jesus anoints the man with the clay before sending him to the pool. And so here we see Jesus, the Son of Man, the creator and recreator. But that's not all. Secondly, we see Jesus, the Son of Man, the man of sorrows. In Mark chapter 9, verse 12, as I read earlier, Jesus says, The Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And of course, we see that in verse 13, when he's brought before the Pharisees. They brought Jesus before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees revile him, we're told in verse 28. But they revile the blind man as his disciple as well. You see, the blind man continues to say that Jesus is a prophet, and we actually skipped over several verses. They come and they question his parents and say, is this the man that was blind from birth? They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that Jesus has healed this man, and they don't want to hear that he's the son of man, certainly. And so he's also the man of sorrows, suffering. As we're told, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases as the son of man. Mark 8.18 puts it this way. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why? Because he's always on the run. Always the man of sorrows being persecuted. And so Jesus identifies very much with the homeless and very much with the blind man here. He suffers with them. He has sorrow for them. And this is, of course, only a prelude to his ultimate suffering on the cross. But the Son of Man is also the judge of man. John 5.25 Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in him, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. So we see Jesus, once again, as recreator and creator, suffering servant or man of sorrows, and final judge as the Son of Man. And we see here that Jesus shows that the blind man, in contrast to the Pharisees, is actually the one who has sight. Because while the blind man was physically blind, the Pharisees are completely spiritually blind. We see that contrast made starkly in the blind man's very logical argument. The Pharisees say, we're disciples of Moses. Where is this Jesus from? And what's the blind man's answer? I love his answer, actually. It starts there in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Speaking of Jesus, they are. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? You have to love the blind man's answer, right? His very tight logic and then his challenge to them. You do not know where he's from, but I was blind, he gave me sight. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. The blind man knows scripture there. He's quoting Psalm 34, 66, and 109. And God listens to obedient worshipers. And no one before has had this power to give sight. And yet this man does. Do you want to be his disciple too? Do you see the tight logic and the confrontation of the blind man who now has sight? to the Pharisees who are so spiritually blind to who Jesus is? Oh, that we could be like this blind man, doggedly following logic and wanting to know the truth, and when we find it, taking it and living in it. Jesus comes to us continually in his Holy Spirit, friends, trying to relieve our blindness of reason, our stubbornness in areas of sin, and how do we react to him? Do we ignore it? Do we 
fall away out of the pain of dealing with that confrontation? Do we send the Holy Spirit away? Of course, we can't really do that. He's in us, right? But do we push him away? Do we say, no, I'm not going to deal with that right now? Do we follow the arrogance of the Pharisees? I found it to be true that many people who claim to want to know the truth simply do not. And worse, I find that true in myself. And perhaps you do too. You know, this Lent I've been teaching a class on the seven deadly sins, and it's brought to me great insight in my reflection into areas where I'm willingly blind, blind to my own sin, blind to how my actions or inactions affect other people. I find that I excuse sin all the time. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with Jesus as who he is. I want to take him on my terms, not his terms. We do it in all sorts of ways, too, don't we? We avoid church, or we avoid conversation with people's so, people so as to not risk confrontation. It's not anything new, though. That's not anything new. That's part of our fallen human nature. Look at verse 39 as we close. Jesus said, For judgment I came to this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. I puzzled over that last passage here for some time this week. And I looked up some of the church fathers to try to get at what Jesus is saying. Chrysostom, a saint uh, and prolific homilist, says this. He says, what did, the Jews profit from, what did the Jews profit from their eyes? They had the greater judgment being disabled even though they saw. Jesus' final point is that that guilt which is attached to sin, can drive us one of two ways. It can drive us to despair and hopelessness, or it can drive us to the cross where there's all hope and where Christ shows his conquering of even the worst pain. Today is Rose Sunday in the church calendar, meaning that Lent is halfway over. How are you doing in your reflection? How are you doing in your confession? How are you doing facing the challenge of the Holy Spirit as he stirs up things in your heart? How are you seeing? How is your sight of your own self and of the things around you? Where are you in restoration and hope? Where are you in dealing with the judgment? We know that Jesus has taken our sin as the man of sorrows. Now, how are we doing in our sanctification, allowing the Holy Spirit to open us up, to work in us, to change us, to heal us, to sanctify us? We're halfway through, friends. Easter is coming. Let us be prepared. Amen.